How's everybody doing today? Good to see everybody. It's fun being back. I, I've been in Israel for a little bit, and we've got 100 people up in the upper room right now finding out their call, how God's wired them, how they can be unleashed for the kingdom. Uh, spring is in the air, almost, right? It has to come, right? It just can't, cannot not come. So uh, I think it's the best time of the year. Forget March Madness. Not going to say anything about that. Uh, but just everything comes back to life. People come out of hibernation. Everything turns green. The sun finally comes out after we haven't seen it for six months. Um, in, in Latin, there's the Latin word for spring. Does anyone know what it is? Lent. Okay, and Lent is something that, has, that, that, that the church put on the calendar, those 40 days of Lent, of spring, that lead up to Good Friday. And even though Lent, you're not going to find it in the Bible, but you're also not going to find Good Friday, the celebration of Easter, Christmas, uh, even Sunday, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Um, it's, it's a great thing. I, I, I like Lent. Um, I mean, we have this term for, for the spring called spring cleaning, right? Where we start cleaning out our basements, our garage, all those rooms in our house that start to just pile things up. And really, that's what Lent is. It's, it's these 40, 40 days for the church to do spring cleaning. The spring cleaning in, in our souls, in our hearts, in our lives, and and we know the things in our lives that, that have gotten cluttered. We, we know the rooms that have become dirty. We, we know the basement and, and, and of our lives and, and, and the things that we've put there. And really, it's, it's, it's 40 days to repent, to get really serious about getting our hearts and our lives right before the Lord. And so I throw this out to Crossroads right now to just say, hey, that's a cool idea. That's not our church. Our church takes hold of these things. And there's nothing that our world needs more. There's nothing that God wants more than a church that is wholehearted. And uh, so let's go for it, all right? Also during this season, uh, we're looking, we're stepping away from the minor prophets and we're really stepping into the life of Christ by looking at those I am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. So today we're gonna to look at John 6. I know we kicked it off with John 6, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, but right in the heart of John 6 is a story. I think it's here for a reason. I think it, 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 it yeah, there's a reason, of course, for everything uh, in the Bible. John 6, I'm going to just start in verse 13. Uh, that will get us into what Brandon taught a couple of weeks ago, and then it will move into our text for today. Uh, we love to stand for the reading of God's word, so let's do that. John 6, <clears throat> actually verse 12. When they had had all when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. It's quite, quite an amazing thing to think about. And after the people saw, not the miracle, the sign, the meaning of this miracle that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet that is to come into the world. And, and, and that's the prophet that Moses talked about, the new Moses that would come uh, in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus, knowing that they had intended to come and make him king by force, retreated again to a mountain by himself. And here's our text. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat, set off across uh, the lake for a town called Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. Strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, it's quite a row, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. They were frightened because they don't know it's Jesus at this point, according to the other gospel accounts. But then Jesus said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. This is God's word. You can be seated. So yeah, after this this miracle, Jesus has great urgency to to get out of that region. Um, He just fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And, and one of the things that, that you know I love to do is I, I love to study the land and then connect the land with the story. And so when I piece together the details of all four gospel accounts of this event, because this event, other than the resurrection, is the only event that all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have in their gospels. It's, it's a big deal, the feeding of 5,000. Uh, because it was more than a, than a miracle. It, it, it was a sign. But here's what I see. Um, I had a PowerPoint of the Sea of Galilee, so you could look at this lake that is uh, 12 miles north to south, seven to eight miles across, and I don't know if that helps you uh, visualize anything. I, d- I don't know if we have that size of a lake uh, other than Lake Michigan in the state of Michigan. It's a very, very good-sized lake. Um, Luke tells us that the miracle, they were in Bethsaida, and then they were pushed into a remote place. So being pushed into the hills from Bethsaida in the first century, that region was home to the zealots, I mean, they all lived in in that region, and and you're getting close now to a first century town uh, called Gamla, which was the headquarters for the whole zealot movement. Now, who are the zealots in Jesus' day? First of all, they're Jews. Second of all, they're terrorists. They are. Uh, At this time, um, the Jews are are under a police state, called Rome, 
And, and, and Rome, much like maybe the Nazis during World War II, I mean, this police state they were under was brutal. It wasn't just that they had to pay lots of taxes to Rome. Rome was just brutal. And so that produced this group of people called, called terrorists, called the Zealots, who, who were response to this. And uh, the reason they lived in those remote regions at night is so that during the day they could come, come down, do the dirty work of terrorism, and then go to their village where it was safe. So when I look at John 6, verse 10, and I, I, I see the details of that verse, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down about 5,000 men. Men. And I've heard some commentators say, yeah, they're just counting the men. There was also women and children there, but I don't think that's the deal. I don't think Jesus is just putting on a nice picnic for men, women, and children. I think the text is right. These are men, and they're not just men, but they are revolutionaries. They're zealots. And every revolution needs a leader. It needs a king. And they just witnessed this miracle, which is more than just a miracle, but it has massive meaning. It's a sign. Signs point us to something. This miracle of bread being provided, Luke's gospel says in Aramis Tapos, where they gathered, which is translated wilderness. They're thinking to themselves, here's a man who did what Moses did, and Moses delivered us from being slaves in Egypt. Wow, let's make him king right now. That's why verse 15. Jesus gets out of Dodge immediately. He puts his disciples in a boat, sends them across uh, to Capernaum, and he retreats to a mountain. Now, before we throw these zealots under the bus, I think we do this subtle thing as well. We try to make Jesus king for our cause. We, 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 we force Jesus to be king for our thing, our cause. We use him for our agenda, and we claim him for our purposes. When we do this, do you see the disgusting thing that that is? And it's ever so subtle. But when we do that, when we force Jesus to be the kind of king that we think he should be for our thing, for our agenda, let me ask you something. Who's the real king there? Who's, uh, who's really, or who are we trying to put on the throne? I mean, it's so easy for us to just turn Jesus into a pawn for our, for, for our agenda, where, where he becomes subservient to our plans, our goals, our wants, our agenda, subservient to how we think our life should go. When we do this, 
We are not worshiping Christ. We are using him. And Jesus didn't come to the world to be used or to serve our agenda or to solve our political, social, and economic problems. He came to the world to solve a much greater problem than Caesar or dirty politicians or a deep state or a media that's out of control. He came to solve the ultimate problem, which is, come on, church, we keep our eye on the ball. Sin. That's the deep, deep problem that is ruining everything from our own lives to the whole world. It's the thing that alienates us from the life of God. It's the thing that, that ultimately brings everything that plagues us into our world upon us. And sin is not just something that's out there. It's something that has infected every single one of us. And Jesus came to deal with that problem. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to heal us. He came to redeem us, restore us, resurrect us, to give us life to the full. Amen. And a forever life in him. Now here's the deal. When we come to Jesus on his terms, everything else changes for us. New creation breaks in, in and out of our lives. Joy, peace, contentment replace worry, restlessness, and fear. And this only happens when we stop forcing Jesus to serve us and we bow to him and we serve him. Thus the storm. The storm. They force him to be king. Then the storm. In fact, the, the text says, uh, when I look at Matthew and Mark's gospel, that Jesus literally sends his disciples in a boat to Capernaum. Um, and if you know how this lake works and where these towns are, Bethsaida and Capernaum are, are both on the same northern shore about four miles apart from each other. So literally, they could get in their boat and go five, five yards out into the water and just hug the shore all the way uh, along the beach and just row until they get to Capernaum. But then when I read Matthew's account, it, it says that this storm comes up and it literally pushed them into the middle of the, of the lake. And then it says that they're, they're struggling against this storm un, until the fourth watch. The fourth watch is anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. And when you piece together what time he sent them out, that means that they have been struggling against the sto this storm, which has only brought them into the middle of the sea, uh, eight to ten hours. Have you been there? I mean, some of you are there right now where, where it just, it, it feels like you're fighting a losing battle and you're so discouraged. You feel 
utterly defeated. I don't know about you, but uh, th there is something unnerving for me about being sometimes on the water, uh, especially at night. Um, you know, I am that guy that if I fall off the tube because I can't see what's underneath my feet, it's like, what's going to come and start nibbling on me? Get the boat here right now. <laughs> and your laughter tells me that you're the same way. I mean, think about that, that, that we feel that. Now, now add to the fact that, that it's, 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 it's late at night, there's a storm that comes up. Um, in, in their worldview, this is the darkness over the face of the deep. It's the chaos. And, and it's more than just the home to the sea creatures that can come up and start chomping, <laughs> In, in their worldview, this is the home to the powers and principalities of this dark world. The beast, the dragon, the leviathan, they all live in the sea. The demonic, it's their home. That's why when they see this figure walking across the water, of course that's a ghost. And they're terrified. I like Psalm 69, I had some of this on PowerPoint. Um, let me just read it to you. David says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out from calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail as I desperately look for my God. God, I'm drowning. And my, my throat is literally parched from, from crying out to you. Where, where are you? You know, I think if the truth be known, in a, in a room this size, uh, some of you are fighting a storm, uh, whether it be in your job, whether it be in your marriage, it could be in your family, it could be you're battling demons from your past, uh, it could be an addiction that you have, that, that you're battling, um, could be relationships. Maybe you feel like you've made a complete mess of your life. Maybe you're, you're just dealing with the storm of just losing something that just meant so much to you. And you, you, you hear something like Psalm 69, you're like, that's right where I am. And like the disciples, you're, you're, you're terrified. I was thinking about this week, I, I think of, of, of all the emotions that we have as human beings, I, I think fear is probably the number one characteristic that, that, that defines our existence. You stop and think about this, never has a civilization been so good at harnessing and controlling so much of life and yet so paralyzed with fear have you ever thought about that? Why is there so much worry? Why is there so much anxiety? Why is there so much fear, even terror? Now, there, are, there, there are many reasons uh, for this epidemic today. Um, there's the fear of, of, of not having enough. 
of, of losing the things that we possess. There's the fear of failure, of not measuring up to other people's expectations or our own expectations, of, of, of letting people down. There's the fear of rejection. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 22 says that what a person desires is unfailing love. There's the, the, the fears that are, that are unique to young people, the, the, the fear of, of, can I find my place in this world? And the crazy thing about that is, is once you establish that, that place, uh, you're old. And then you have the fears <laughs> that are unique to old people. I guess I'm describing my own journey right now. You know, you start thinking about dying. You start thinking about the people you love dying. Um, you start thinking about the fact that, you know, no one right now really remembers uh, my great-grandpa, so at some point in the game, none of us are going to be remembered. Those are real fears. But then there's the fear of the storm. Those, those unexpected realities that can strike us at any moment where they just come out of the blue that remind us how little control we actually have over life. And then some of us today are probably battling uh, the storm into the fourth watch. It just keeps going and going and going. And, and it feels like in all of that, that God is absent. I mean, can't you hear the disciples at some point in this deal? Like, why did Jesus do this? Why did he tell us to get in the boat? Where is he? Why didn't he come with us? And I don't think there's anything more discouraging than when you're in your hour of greatest need and it feels like, like Christ is completely absent. Where are you? I, I, I've never needed you more. Where are you? Let me ask you in this story, is Jesus absent? Well, where is Jesus? Well, we know he's not in the boat. John 6, verse 15 tells us he's not in the boat. He, he went up on the mountain. What, what, what's he doing up on a mountain overlooking the, the, the sea? <laughs> now, Matthew and Mark's account tell us what Jesus is doing. He's praying. Praying for who? Praying for what? Listen to these texts. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, because Jesus lives forever, we have a permanent priesthood. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. He always lives to intercede for us. Or how about Romans 8, 26 and 27? In the same way, the Spirit of Christ, he helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit of Christ himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts intercedes for God's people in, in accordance to the perfect will of God. 24, 7, 365, Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying perfect prayers on our behalf. 
So Jesus is up on that mountain. He's praying. He's interceding for his disciples. He loves these guys. These guys have dropped everything. They've given up so much to follow him so they can become like him. He's not absent. Get this ingrained in your mind when it feels like God is absent. When you're in the midst of a storm, and you're like, where is he? He sees you. He knows exactly what you need. And he is interceding for you with wordless groans. He loves us. But this is a text that's about more than just how much Jesus loves us. It's, it, it's also a text about his power. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus, not yet knowing it was Jesus, approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Job 8, Job 9 verse 8 says this about God, about the Lord. He alone stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. Do you see how Jesus, without saying anything, how what he's declaring himself to be, the kind of king he is, his place in the world? And I think what Jesus says is, is far more impressive than, than what he does. Uh, he says, do not be afraid, it is I. In fact, in that, Jesus just gave the only reason why a person need not fear, ever. Because when he says, it is I, in, 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 the, in the original language, it's, it's the Greek, ego, a me, um, it's, it's I am. Do not be afraid, I am. It almost sounds weird. But in my opinion, this is maybe the greatest I am statement that Jesus makes. Because what he just did is he just took on God's name. God gave this name. Uh, when, when God first gave his name, it, it was to Moses. When, when Moses first encounters God and Moses comes upon this bush that, that, that is uh, consumed with fire, but for some reason the bush itself is not being consumed. And God says, out of that fire, he says, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to be. I am a consuming fire and I'm going to make my home with, with my people and I'm not gonna consume them even though I am a consuming fire. And Moses says, what is your name? Now remember, uh, in that world, a name is, is the essence of who you are. So he, what, what Moses is, is asking is, who are you? Who, who am I talking to? And then God says this. He says, I am who I am. He says, my name is I am. Now, I am in, 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 Hebrews, in Hebrew is four letters. It's yod heh vav heh. 
Jews to this day call this the unutterable name of God. They, they, they don't ever say it. it. It's too holy to ever speak. So, so they translate it Adonai, which we translate the Lord. So anytime you see Lord in your Old Testament, it's yod Hey vav Hey, the unutterable name of God, which is I am. So every time you see the Lord throughout the Old Testament, you could just as well as just say, I am, the I am, the great I am. And in this name, what God is telling Moses, I'm not what you want me to be. I'm not your wish fulfillment. I'm not a God that's created according to your image or your likeness. I am. I am who I am. He's saying I have no beginning, I have no end, I'm, I'm dependent on nothing uh, for anything, I'm the ground of all being, for from me and through me and for me are all things. Jesus just took that name on himself. He says, guys, do not be afraid. I am. And look at him. He's not just saying these words, but he's, he's, he's taking a stroll on the face of the deep. Now, I don't know if you know this, because in, in, in seminary I was taught that God created the world out of nothing, but that's actually not what Genesis wants us to believe. Genesis wants us to believe that at the very beginning there are two realities, awesome realities that exist. Of course, one of those realities is God, but that other reality is the chaos. And the, and the chaos in, in Genesis is described as that, that darkness over the face of the deep. And creation then for God is this act of war against the chaos. It's God moving into the chaos into that darkness over the face of the deep and ruling it and subduing it and, and bringing that, that, that chaos into submission and then out of that bringing order and goodness and harmony and shalom. And Jesus is saying, that's me. You keep reading in the story and, and then in Exodus when God's people are are sandwiched between the chaos of the Egyptian army and the chaos of the sea. Moses spoke to the people. I love what he said. He says, everyone, just sit back and watch. Watch what God's going to do. In the next verse, Exodus 14, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and he turned it into dry land, and the waters were divided. That, too, is one of the first things God does when he creates the world, is he, he separated the waters from the land uh, and, 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 and divided it. And, and the way it actually reads is he didn't just drive the sea back. He walked it back all night long. Who is this? If you want to know Jesus' place in the universe, 
It's this. Absolutely everything is under his feet, under his rule, under his dominion. The wind, the waves, the deep, what's under the deep, the demonic, all of it. And then when you think about what God's name means, especially when we're in the storm, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, what, what, what he's kind of saying to Moses is, Moses, think about it. I am, and I will always be, I am. I am right now what I always was. And I am right now what I will always be. And then when you stop and think all that God has been to our parents and our grandparents and God's people throughout history and, and all that God has been to his people in this book, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to be that to us right now. And what he is to us right now, he's going to be that to us in the future. And if you have that in your life, that'll make you un immovable and unshakable, irrespective of the storm that's thrown at you. Let me just ask a personal question. What does Jesus mean to you right now? Who is he to you right now? What place does Jesus occupy in your life? Because I actually think Jesus can, can, can be different things to us. We can say Jesus is our friend. And yet he, he, he is, he's, he's the best friend any, anyone could ever have. He says, cast all your cares on me, I care for you. You could say, yeah, he, he, he's my teacher, yes, and he did come to the world to be a rabbi. In fact, he is literally the, the word of God in the flesh. You can say he's my example. No one lived a life like Jesus. You can even go further and you can say Jesus is my savior. Yeah, that's the very meaning of his name. He saves us from everything, including ourselves. But from your heart right now, can you say, Jesus is the Lord? He's my Lord. Can you say that? Because this is the heart of the whole thing. This has always been the message. Paul said it. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. I mean, Jesus as Lord is the conviction that burned in the hearts of these early Christ followers. And they didn't just preach it, they lived it. They risked everything, their life, their possessions, their status for this conviction. And most of us in this room right now, we're middle class. And I think we project those middle class attitudes onto our relationship with Jesus. Just enough. 
Not too much. We sprinkle just a little Jesus on our lives to make us healthy and wealthy and, and to fill in those little gaps that we think that we might need him for. Is he your Lord? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of your time? Is he the Lord of your possessions? Is he the Lord to you in the storm? Because he is Lord of the storm. And I think this is how Jesus, how God uses storms in our lives. Yeah, you heard me right. Jesus uses storms. I, I, I will push that further. In, in Mark and Matthew's gospel account of this, it says, and Jesus put them in the boat and sent them into the storm. He sends us into storms. Not to hurt us, to help us. Because here's what storms do. Storms reveal the things that we've placed in the center of our lives in the place of God. The things that we trust, the things that we hang on to instead of God. In Genesis 22, God comes and tests Abraham. Why does he do this? He wants to find out what is in Abraham's heart. And this is not for God's sake, this is for Abraham's sake. So God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I, I want you to take what you love most, Isaac, your son, I want you to give him up. This test was the greatest storm Abraham ever experienced. What did Abraham do? That's not fair, God. Are you crazy, God? Nope. Abraham, early the next morning, got up. He gave up Isaac. It was a storm stilled. Yes, it was. Or think about Job. Satan's looking at Job. <laughs> that guy loves you only because of all the blessings that you've poured over his life. He comes to God and says, God, you know what? If you take away all the blessings in Job's life, you know what he'll do? He won't bless you. He'll curse you. God sends a massive, a massive storm upon Job. Job loses everything. What does Job do? His wife actually curses God. But Job actually climbs aboard. The only thing that he knows will not sink. He climbs into the I am, the Lord. And he worships him as Lord. He says, the I am gives and the I am takes away. Blessed be that name. Could you, be, could you and I be a Job? You know, where, where, where Satan was wrong about Job, he, he was actually right about something. Uh, storms do expose those things that we look to in life to buoy us, things that we think will keep us afloat. I mean, think about all the things that we turn to, all the things we desperately seek, all the things that we put our trust in that, that, 
that we think will now allow us to have control of our lives, that will keep us afloat and buoy us in, in times of difficulty. All kinds of things. There's the buoy of being liked. Then there's that storm of disapproval. No upvotes, no likes. It's crazy that that's a storm today. There's the buoy of true love. And there's a storm of rejection, the storm of no dates. There's the buoy of money, our career, possessions. And then there's a storm of the layoff. There's a storm of someone else gets promoted. There's a storm of losing our jobs. There's a storm of a bad economy. There's a buoy of our accomplishments that, that we hang on to, but then there's a storm of failure. There's a storm that, that someone's always going to do it better. There's the buoy of pleasure. And then there's the storm of addiction. Or there's the storm of despair that, that comes when we realize that that pleasure will never satisfy. There's the buoy of health and beauty. And then there's the storm of an accident. Or our bodies getting older, aging. Even Paul was prone to this to the buoy of ministry, something that looks so good that, that we cling to. God sends a storm, thorn in the flesh. Paul says, I pleaded with God, please take this away. No, Paul, I like that storm. It teaches you that I am enough. What's holding you up right now? Honestly, what are you building your life on? What are you holding on to? A buoy? Or the great I am? Matthew's account gives this wonderful detail of Peter. Peter is starting to get it. He's starting to see Jesus for who he is. And when he realizes it's Jesus walking on water, Peter says, my Lord, my Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Now listen, for Peter, this is not about walking on water. This is simply about getting to his Lord. It's either the boat or Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, come. And Peter in that moment leaves the security of the boat to do the impossible, to walk on water. Why? To take hold of the great I am. And here's the battle we all face today. It's the choice between fear and faith. Between trusting ourselves and, and all those things that, that we hang on to that we think are going to buoy us or trusting the great I am. And here's the deal with faith. We, we think that we have to muster up all this faith to have true faith, where, where we never have any doubts. But it, it's not the measure of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Will we get out of the boat? Will we? That's what it's about. Whether we doubt, whether we have fears, Will we let go of our buoys and the things that we're clinging on to that we think are gonna save us and satisfy us and heal us? 
Will we let it go? And will we get out of the boat and take hold of the great I am? Because here's what Jesus does with the storm. He has the power to minimize the storm. Another time, he just looks at the storm and he says, shut up. And it's dead calm. Other times, he just maximizes himself in the storm. And he says, trust me. And what's at stake here is the difference between a life of fear and faith. God, thank you for blowing up our small ideas of who you are. You are the great I am. And you have come to this world to enter the storm, to be with us in the storm, and to eventually save us from the storm. God, may we fix our eyes on you because you are the author, the perfecter of our faith. God, may there be spring cleaning in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.